inside internally, I didn't feel at that time I had anybody to speak to. So I carried on gambling. And that was my escape. I'd go out at lunchtime and I'd go down to the bookmakers. I could do 500,000 pounds just on the lunchtime. Yeah. And I was taking out loans. I was borrowing money off everybody I could. I was phoning my mum up saying, I know I've got a problem with the car. All the lies started coming out, the manipulation. How do I move on from this? Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival and the revolutionary event crowd, our new online events course. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. So if you want to hear more like this, make sure you subscribe, leave us a glowing review, and you can follow me on Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every single message. Matt Smith literally had the dream job at TalkSport, travelling the globe and witnessing every single major sporting event there is. He had a nice car, a good wage and a promising future. But he lost it all as a crippling gambling addiction took hold, consuming his life and leaving him penniless. It's safe for gambling week this week and now that he's on a better path, Matt wanted to come in and share his cautionary tale of begging, borrowing, stealing to feed his addiction and his lies. This is the eventful life of Mr. Matt Smith. Matt, welcome to the show, mate. Thanks, Dodge. Thanks for having me. I want to roll away back. Where did you grow up and how did you get into talk sport radio? Okay, so I grew up in Solihull in the Midlands, not far from the NEC. Um, just me and my mum. So my father left when I was young. And I think, you know, it's important to add that in as context, you know, to where we're going to go on this story. And had a great upbringing, brilliant upbringing. My grandmother was around a lot as well. And... Um, yeah, just really fantastic. I had lots of friends and just really, really, you know, I felt loved. You know, I felt a lot of love. Um, and I actually went to school, uh, went to school called Lytle School. And, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about my my road to my gambling road. Yeah. And it actually started at school. And we played a game at school called Tipsy. Mm. And I've heard this name called 600 different things over the mm. past few years. And you throw a coin up against the wall and the one who gets it closest mm. to the wall wins the money. So I used to play that game. And you know what that game did for me? It made me feel part of, part of something. I wasn't particularly good at sport. I was always interested in sport. And, but I, I wasn't good enough to play it. So I, I didn't really play football or rugby that much. Yeah, part of PE lessons yeah. and that. So I felt part of a crowd by doing this. Mm. And the thing is, I never wanted then to go to school and not be able to play this game. So when I didn't have the money to do it, I started to take a bit out of my mum's purse when yeah. I was younger, yeah. you know, still. And she must have thought, where's that, where's that gone? Yeah. You know, because you can imagine, you know, taking five, six pounds at a time yeah, and right. you've got a little pot of change. Mm. Where's that gone? So what sort of age were you here? Uh, I reckon I was about 14. Okay. Yeah, about 14. Okay. And played that game for a couple of years till I left school and um, always knew that I wanted to work in radio, but I actually went and trained as a plumber for a little while first. And didn't didn't really get on with that. It was a bit too physical for me. Um, and I ended up going to college and doing a, um, a, like a, a HND at the time in, in radio production. Went to a local radio station in Birmingham, said, you know, can I do something? Got knocked back. I wanted to be on air. I wanted to be a presenter. Mm. And then realized how competitive that was. Mm. I mean, it's great now in the world of podcasts because anybody can be a presenter. But back then it was really competitive. Yeah. 
So um, I couldn't do that. So I thought, what's the next best thing I can do is, is work behind the scenes. I'm probably going to need to go to university. Didn't particularly want to go to university, but I think my mum wanted me to go. So I went. And you know what? The, the one thing I got out of university was kind of that life experience. It wasn't about the education for me as such. It was about getting life experience, yeah. learning how to look after myself. So I went off to university and gambled my way through university, basically, because I wanted to be the one who had the money, yeah. who could go out and you know, always have a good time mm. and not be worried about, oh, how am I going to go out tonight? Because mm. that's what I thought was university was all about for me, was that social life, yeah. you know, meeting other people. What year, what year are we roughly talking? We're here? going back to about 90, uh, 98, 99 yeah. when I was at university. And you were saying you were gambling. What sort of gambling were you doing then? Fruit machines. Fruities. So I'd go to the pub, yeah. drink a few pints and just play fruit machines. Okay. So all my friends are there with me yeah. in the pub. Yeah. And all I'm doing is stood at a fruit machine, just yeah. putting in coin after coin after coin. Yeah. And you know what? Even if the jackpot was like 50 pounds, I put in a hundred pounds just to win that 50 pounds. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't it, it wasn't always about how much I was going to win. Yeah. It was that attraction to the lights and yeah. you know, the ego was coming out and yeah, I'd get the win and then I could go and buy everybody a drink and all mm. that kind of stuff. So that was then. And, you know, I was going through going through university and I, I wasn't doing very well because I was gambling all my money, mm. all my thoughts were on that. But I managed to get through and um, I, I got my degree and I basically went straight to talk sport after that. Wow. Yeah, I got a job there straight away, which... And how did you how did you get that job at talk sport? And what was talk sport like back then? We're talking 22 years ago. Now talk sport yeah. is one of the biggest radio stations worldwide yeah. and massive in the UK as we know. Yeah. Yeah. Tell wow. me how you got that opportunity. Unbelievable, really. So there was a role there to be a technical operator to drive the the mixing desk. And um, I basically just emailed them and said, you know, I've just come out of university. Um, I see that you're looking for a few people. I'd love to do it. Now, bear in mind, I was back at home then. So I was back in the Midlands. The job was in London. And they were like, you know, come and have a chat with us. Went down, had a chat with them, which was great. And they said, look, you know, we'll, why don't you come in and shadow for a while, see what's done? So I was paying to go down there, getting the coach twice a week mm. to learn the ropes. And then eventually they said, look, we'll take you on as a freelancer. Mm. And I was just getting like loads and loads of hours. You know, I was doing really well at the job. I was completely focused. Um, that's what I always wanted to do was working and sit in a radio studio and then be surrounded by all these ex-sportsmen yeah. as well. was like, wow, you yeah. know, everybody my age. It's a dream, man. Right? It's like a dream job, yeah. you know. And I was like, wow, this is, this is brilliant. Yeah. You know, I was absolutely, absolutely loved it. Um, and I've seen some major events while I was there. So when, when we... When so I, you, start, you started roughly, what, 2000? 2001. 2001. And I started right on 9-11. Okay. Right on 9-11. Yeah. And so I remember that, you know, I remember us because we were actually covering news events as well at the time. So I remember, you know, we switched all our programming for sport into news. And so it was a big time. But, you know, we just started. It was run by Kelvin McKenzie at the time, was our boss, the the former editor of The Sun. Yeah. And So was it his brainchild? Was yeah, it? yeah. Was it? Yeah, yeah. And what yeah. did he see? What did he see a gap in the market? So yeah. So it started off as talk radio, yeah. Dodge, and they were doing like current affairs and a bit of sport. Yeah. And then as time went on, I thought, you know what? Yeah. We see there's a gap here yeah. to do sport. And so Kelvin brilliantly came up with the idea, let's call it Talk Sport. So we were only at that point probably doing about 12 hours a day of sport and 12 hours a day still of current affairs because okay. we were that audience was transitioning. We still had that current affairs audience, yeah. you know, people like James Well, we had broadcasting. He was back there again now, yeah. I think, you know, on, on one of their stations. 
So you had to kind of, you had to still do both for a period of time until yeah. you'd, you'd really pulled in that sports audience. And remember, we didn't have any rights to broadcast any sport either. So we were just talking about sport. Well, so were you, were you actually just watching the games live on a Sunday afternoon and then say Sunday night on Monday, you would talk about the games on the weekend? Exactly. Okay. Or we were doing phone-ins straight after the game. Have you been to the game? Are you in the car? Give us a ring. What was the Tell atmosphere you, like? What was the atmosphere like? What did you like? see? What, yeah, we, we had see. no broadcast rights at all. Okay. So, Quality. Yeah, yeah. So you had a blank canvas, essentially. We did. And actually, during the period I was there, we um, we actually did do some broadcasting of sports events. So we actually were watching them off the TV with like fake sound effects saying that we're actually, we're not there. We're not broadcasting from the stadium, <laughs> but we're commentating on the game. Love it. And it was like, yeah, we've got to try somehow yeah. to break into this BBC, yeah. you know, we're literally, monopoly, they had the yeah. monopoly. Yeah. They had the rights to absolutely everything. Yeah. So we were doing stuff like that and we were getting raps on the knuckles from everywhere, Dodge, you Brilliant. know, like everywhere. And we were like the little boys. Do you know what I mean? We yeah. were like, you had the big boys at the BBC with tons of cash. So who were the competitors at the time then? Who was who was talking about sport at the time? Capital in London. Yeah. So where Jonathan Pierce was commentating yep. at the time. And then Five Live, BBC Five Live okay. were our main competitors. And, and and your man who come in from the sum. Yeah, Kelvin. Yeah. Kelvin said, hold on a minute, there's a gap in the market. I want yeah. a piece of this pie. Yeah, okay. exactly. So what we started to do was we started to buy up some local broadcast rights in London so we could split the transmitters across the country. Yeah. What we used to do was we used to go to Chelsea or Spurs or Fulham, for example, yeah. and say, we want to buy the rights in London just to to your club. Yep. And that's what we did. So we took those rights away from Capital because Capital had them. We oh, took wow. them off them. We pumped some money in. We put took them off them and we started broadcasting um, those those matches, basically. So we, we started to have that footprint then. starting. Could to get you into broadcast live, live then? Yeah. Are you broadcasting live? So you'd go to the game, watch Chelsea West Ham. Yeah, we were commentating live on the no. game. Yeah. One. But just in London. Wow. And then anywhere else you were listening to talk sport in the country, you would hear a completely different programme. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How amazing is that? I so know. how many so how, when you jumped on board then, how many people were on board with Kelvin at that point? In terms of the backroom staff, just and every, just uh, just everyone at the time was it a small team? Yeah, I mean we had we had two floors at Hatfields where we were near the South Bank in London. There was yeah. probably on the production floor, I reckon it was about thirty of us maybe, um, plus the presenters. And then you had the sales team as well, probably about another 20 or 30. And you say the sales team, what is the business model behind it? Is it purely sponsorship? Yeah, sponsorship and advertising. Yeah, yeah. okay. S&P, basically sponsorship promotions and sponsorships where the money is, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Know. I mean, when I started there, we had a lot of bookmakers coming on board as yeah. well. You yeah. know, gambling operators spending yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. Mm. And that's actually turned now to a front of football shirts. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We'll come, yeah. we'll come back to that. Yeah. That's a, yeah. a lovely it's topic another, in itself. Yeah, it's yeah. Sense, yeah. So, so your journey there, you jumped down 2001. Did you actually fall in love with it then? Did you still have your gambling addiction? No. Was that increasing? Or no, was that... that's the funny okay. thing. I stopped. Okay. Got into relationship uh, when I moved to London and kind of settled down a little bit, yeah. you know, and really loved my job, enjoyed what I was doing. And that went on for a few years. And I went from doing the mixing desk to actually becoming a producer. Yep. I was producing live programs. Brilliant. And then I was producing live sports. So we started to pick up some rights here and there yep. uh, where we could. They were non-exclusive mainly. So we was, so the BBC would still be broadcasting it, but we'd broadcast an alternative you know, to yep. that. And we'd bring in some different talent and some yep. different voices. So when you say bring in different talent, what sort of faces would you bring in at the time? Well, we'd go for like more of a, we were going for more of a younger audience yep. at the time. Um, so actually when I was there, we brought in people like Ray Parler, who's there now, Brilliant. you know, so somebody that those younger fans could associate with because he'd just come out of the game. Yeah. 
So yeah, 2005, uh, a position became available where um, I was able to go outside of the building and start producing live broadcasts outside. We were p picking up a lot more rights at this point yeah. as well. So basically I went into the role as program manager and I headed up all of our major live broadcasts yeah. all over the planet. Yeah. So in 2006, for the first time, we picked up the World Cup in, South, in Germany. In Germany, in Germany. Yeah. we picked up the live rights. So we went there to the stadiums. We picked up the rights to the Premier League nationally for the first time. So the BBC monopoly over the national rights yeah. had suddenly come to an end. And we broadcast our first game and it was at Bolton. Yeah. And I must mention this. Um, I love that. I've done a minute broadcasting rights all around the planet and our first game we picked up it, it was, was Bolton. Bolton yeah yeah <laughs> it was like what and it was a three o'clock kickoff yeah and um JJ Acocha there or was that before he probably time? would have been there yeah, then okay. yeah and the commentator for us was a gentleman called Nigel Pearson Nigel sadly passed away this yeah. year um he was very famous on Sky for the Speedway commentary yeah and Nigel was a great guy and he was so behind it. And he, you know, he launched us, you know, launched his Premier League coverage for us. And that was a real turning point for Talk Sport to pick up these live rights. And you say about the business model. Yeah. As soon as you've got the rights to the Premier League. Yeah. You're away. You're away. Yeah, I agree. Everybody's coming on board yeah. then. They're like, we want a piece of this. Yeah. So we had advertisers, gambling operators, you name it, um, alcohol, everything coming on board saying we want a piece of this. And that was it. I mean, we we just went onwards and upwards. So. What a great story this is. Yeah. What a fantastic story. Yeah. So so Talk Sport, you were there 2001. You're now, you've, you've been in there five years. Tell me some sporting events that you've been around the world and actually gone to yourself. Oh, 2006 World Cup in Germany. Yep. 2010 World Cup in South Africa. 2007 Rugby World Cup in France. Yep. 2011 Rugby World Cup in New Zealand. Open golf championships from, uh, you know, I went to Troon, um, all over, all over. Um, Champions League finals, I think I went to eight Champions League finals. I was there in Istanbul in 2005, Liverpool, AC wow. Milan, the, the big, you know, yeah, the big turnaround, 3-0 yeah, yeah. down at half-time. Three. Yeah, 3-0 down at half-time and people were leaving the stadium. What, yeah, was we were that, there. what was the atmosphere like when what? Liverpool were 3-0 down at half-time? Because I see, I see it on telly, a load of my pals at Liverpoolians... And there was people there just leaving and didn't come leaving. back. Leaving, yeah. Leaving, so, you know, we're never going to do this. Yeah. What was the atmosphere like in that second half? Did you sense there was something coming? Or, or, or was it you needed that first goal, Stevie G, to get the whole crowd going yeah. again? And yeah, and once he got that crowd going, because he's that type of person yeah. who can get that crowd going, yeah. and once there that crowd was behind them, it was like, wow, this has just changed the game completely. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, there were, people, there were hundreds of people leaving. Yeah. And I was thinking, hang on a minute. You've come all the way yeah. to Istanbul. You've probably spent, you know, if not a thousand pounds, at least, easy, at a least, couple of G, yeah, 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 you know, to get there. Yeah. Every hotel in Istanbul's booked out. Yeah, you know, everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I remember when we used to book hotels for these events, Dodge. We yeah. used to have to book them a year before. Yeah, you know, because, just to guarantee, just to guarantee you yeah. getting there, yeah. even though if you, even if an English side isn't there yet, you yeah. had to book it then. Yeah, so I've spent all this money. And oh, I mean, we had some wild experiences there. I remember going in a taxi to the stadium and the, the taxi driver missed the uh, turn off to the stadium. He literally just stopped the car on the motorway and reversed back. <laughs> and I was like, are we even going to get there? You know, um, so it's just a fantastic atmosphere inside. And so, so, your, so your journey, your actual journey, when you're saying, right, I did the 2006, I did the 2010 in South Africa, going to all these events, what would you actually be doing? Would they be paying for your flight, your accommodation, your food, your booze? 
was it all on tap? Was it all on tap for you? Yeah, pretty much. So my job was basically to organise the logistics of the event. So basically, when we know we've got an event coming up, we've got the broad, we've bought the broadcast rights to it. So the team who who were part of those kind of negotiations, which sometimes I was involved yeah. with, they've got the rights, and they'd then come to me and say, Matt, we've got the rights. What are we going to do? Yeah, and I'd say. How much money? Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> and then they'd basically say, put a budget together. Let's have a look at it. So something like Istanbul, yeah. Champions League. Give final. me an example. Yeah, I'd send five of us. Yeah. So I'd go. I'd organise the hotel. I'd organise the flights. I would be the liaison between us and UEFA who ran the event. I'd organise all the accreditation for the event for us to go there, um, and just all the logistics. Yeah. And yeah, food, drink, everything was paid for by. By the company, happy you know, days. We had, we had a, yeah, happy days. I mean, we had, you know, we we had a, you know, a per DMs amount that we were given, and and very generous amount yeah. as well, money that they would give us. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure whether it should have gone on alcohol technically, but I think there was always this argument that soft drinks are just as expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, so my job would be, and that was quite stressful at times, yeah. by the way, because in radio you're working everything to the second. Yes, you know, so. I'd also do all the telecommunications side. So we'd have to have a link back to London, a broadcast link. Yeah. And I would organize that with the local company, yeah. wherever in the world we were going. And that was quite difficult at times because you're talking another language. Yeah. Sometimes these guys like to see a bit of extra money yeah. on top as well. You know, yeah. I've been to places and they've gone, we don't know nothing about this. You've shown them 200 euros, yeah. all of a sudden they so know they about do it. it. <laughs> you know, quality. Yeah, it was it's the way like the world them. works, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and I was, I'd always be prepared for that. And yeah. to be fair, my boss at the time, Bill Ridley, and Bill used to work for Rupert Murdoch. He worked for Fox News in the States. Bill's a great guy, and he was an old Fleet Street hack. So yeah. he, he was a journalist, but he knew that sometimes we had to go and kind of grease a few palms yeah. to make things happen. So he always, if I said to him, look, I need an extra couple of hundred to do this or that, he knew that. He understood that that's mm. how the world works, mm. you know. Is there an event and a story that really stands out in your mind? Uh, one of them, actually, yeah. So we went to the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne in Australia. And Alan Brazil, the host of The Breakfast Show for many years at yeah. TalkSport. And Alan and I got on great and we travelled quite a lot of places to get a Cheltenham. He's very well known for his antics at Cheltenham and yeah. sometimes not turning up. And he was due to come out to Melbourne. And this is a big deal. We'd done a big deal with a big airline um, and they wanted their money's worth yeah. out of this. What was the airline? Singapore Airlines, yeah. who were great, by the way. Yeah. They, did, they, they were brilliant with us. So they paid for us to take the breakfast show out to Melbourne yeah. for a week and broadcast from the Commonwealth Games. The day that Alan was due to arrive, he was coming straight from Cheltenham. So he'd been at Cheltenham. Been for on the week. piss for four been, days, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I get a phone call. He's missed his flight. Okay. Are we getting him on another flight? We're getting him on another flight. Okay. What time is he going to arrive? About four hours before we start broadcasting, oh, I was like, oh, my <laughs> word, are you kidding me? You know, I mean, the ner I was shattered with nerves, yeah. you know, like, is he going to turn up? Yeah. We've got all these guests booked who are going to come and see us, you know. The sponsor, Singapore Airlines, are waiting for this to happen, yeah. you know. So anyway, he gets there. He went, Matt, and I can't do Alan's accent. I'm rubbish at accents. Yeah. I can't do Alan's accent. But, you know, Alan's got this, you know, unmistakable voice, hasn't he? You know, mm. this Scottish yeah. grunt. And he said, Matt, I think I've got bird flu. And bird flu was quite big at the yeah, time. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, this, yeah. Was in two, this was in 2006. He said, I think I've got bird flu. And I'm thinking, you've just had a few days on the mm, lash, basically. Mm. I know what you like, because I've been there with yeah. you. I've seen it, yeah. you know. 
And I said, look, what, what do you want to do, Al? And he said, oh, I'm just going to have a lie down for a bit and then I'll be ready for the show. Okay, so do the show. And his voice is shot to pieces. And my boss, Bill, who I mentioned, rings me after and went, Matt, we can't have that tomorrow. Yeah. I don't care what you do, but do something. Yeah. Because they're not happy. They've spent a lot of money on this. Yeah. They flew him out there first class. Yeah. Done this, done this. Okay. So next morning, Al, look, uh, let's go for a walk. And I know with Al, to get him going again, he's give him a drink, basically. Another pint. Yeah, yeah, but he didn't want to have a drink. Yeah. And this was unlike Al. Yeah. And we would go for a walk down the Yarra Valley in Melbourne. I see this this bar with like a little rooftop. And I went, hey, come on, Al, let's have a, let's have a little walk up there. Even if we just have a glass of Coke or something. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm not having a drink. I'm not having a drink. Okay, okay. So we sat there anyway. And I said to the lady, I said, bottle of Dom Perignon, please. Because I know he loves Dom Perignon. <laughs> and I'm thinking, my boss is going to kill me. I'm spending a fortune here. <laughs> and he comes with plonks his bottle on. And Al just staring at him. And he said, oh, go on then, I'll have one. Two bottles later, he's flying. <laughs> yeah. His mouth, his voice sounds 100% better. And we go back and we do the broadcast. Um, and he's got his co-presenter with him as well. Graham Beecroft was with us at the time. And he just had a brilliant show. Mm. He was on fire. The guy who was presenting Australia. So he was. So he did the show after the two bottles. Yeah. Did it? Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. In my in my room yeah. in the hotel. Yeah. And the guy who was presenting on Channel Nine in Australia on the TV, Al was berating him the whole time. You know, berating him. Like I'm watching yeah. this guy on Australian TV. I don't like him. Anyway, my boss phones me after Bill. He says, Matt, I don't know what you did. I don't want to know what you did. But that was brilliant. <laughs> And he just absolutely loved it, you know, and we spoke about it when I got back and he was like, brilliant, you know, it saved it. Yeah. Um, and that guy, he was berating, by the way, on the TV. We seen him the, that next night in the <laughs> restaurant. Oh, no. And I was like, oh, Head please down. don't say anything. Please don't say anything. So that was a great story, you know, and Al was great company. And we went off to a vineyard for a day while we were out there and Lovely. stuff. I mean, we did some really good stuff, you know. I mean, I'm really, the opportunities that I had were not the typical opportunities of a 25, 26 yeah, year old. Yeah. You know, you're not getting to go to those places without a ton of cash, are you? Dodge, you've you know? you've landed on your feet here. Landed on my feet. Yeah. Landed on my and feet. What about, and what about um, something like Singapore Airlines? What sort of wedge would they pay for a sponsor, roughly, for something like that? For something like that at yeah. the time. So we go, we're going back to 12 know, years. 16 it, years. What is it, 2006? Yeah. Come off. Okay. So 16 yeah. years ago. I think they paid something like. 50 grand maybe for the week. Okay. And then the flights on top and everything. So you're so, probably all in at 80 grand maybe. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah, it's quite a lot of money. Yeah, of course. Yeah, for a week. 16 years ago. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, you probably pay a lot more now. Yeah. Um, and they would be like the title sponsor of the show. Exactly. So Breakfast. you'd say, we're sponsored by Singapore Airlines. Check them out on their website, whatever it may be. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And I'd be part of those pre-conversations yeah. as well. So part of my role was... What can we do for Singapore Airlines when we're in Melbourne? Yeah. You know, some special bits and pieces. Introduce you know. them to yeah, people. Yeah, and can we can we also um, have a chat with the pilot on the way out yeah. there, perhaps? Just Get you know, to say something. Just say yeah. something. You know, just some little stuff like that. Yeah. So we did that. And we did a couple of deals with Singapore Airlines. The year, I think it was the year before that, we went to Singapore, actually, yeah. where London won the 2012 Olympics. It yeah. was announced in Singapore. Yeah. So we'd already done some work with them there. Brilliant. Some great stories there, but I, I can't tell them, I'm afraid. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why <kind> not? <laughs> <laughs> what, what's, so where what, were what you? What happens on tour stays on where tour. Where were you? Stuff. Where were you at that time? Uh, in Singapore? Yeah. We were staying in um, the Pan Pacific Hotel and we were broadcasting. Isn't from, there a hotel there called Four Floors? Yeah. 
There is, a, you, yeah, don't you know, you know this stuff. That's Rumors on Orchard Towers, yeah, Orchard Towers. Uh, wow, yeah, <laughs> that's a place. <laughs> so, yeah, lots of uh, yeah, interesting. So this, 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 this roll, let's roll back a bit here. Obviously, your journey has been a, a wonderful journey up to now. There was obviously from being being a youngster, nicking a couple of quid out your mum's purse to go gambling, and then going into the fruities. And when did, and then you had a couple of years of not. When did it really kick off again for your gambling addiction to really kick in? And what sort of yeah. age were you? Yeah, so it's 2010. Yeah. It really kicked off for me, South How old Africa. Are you? So 2010, that's 12 years ago. I'm 44 now, so 32. Okay. Um, and where were you when it kicked off again? In South Africa. Okay. So what happened was my boss, Bill Ridley, left. Yeah. He retired. I was upset about that. Yeah. I had a connection with him. Do you know what I mean? At times, I'd say he was like a father figure mm. to me. You know, I spoke at the end that my father wasn't around. Mm. He was always that person who'd say, Matt, my door is always open. So I missed him. Do you mm. know what I mean? I missed him. And then I had a new boss came in who came from the BBC. Very much a corporate attitude. And you know, all those things I spoke about earlier on where I was saying about how we were the little boys and we yeah. were really trying to break in. Yeah. To have a boss who'd come from that corporate yeah. kind of place, we like, oh, how do we work with this? Yeah. You know, because we were used to being like- You lose that entrepreneurial spirit, didn't you? Exactly. Yeah. Which you know everything about yeah. that, Dodge, you know. Yeah. So we lost that. And we always liked that kind of having that spirit because it, it, it drove us. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It was like, yeah, we can be, we can do better than them. We yeah. know we can do better yeah. than with them. We'd le with less money as well. Yeah. So he left and a new boss came in and I worked with him for a couple of years. And during my time there, I, was, I started to get my mental health at times got affected because I felt a lot of anxiety. I always felt at times that, I was a bit wary about my job, you know, whether I was going to lose. Because, you know, you've got a job like that, you do not want to lose it. Of course. Yeah. And you're working in the media yeah. and it's it gets political at and times. Cutthroat. And it's cutthroat. Yeah. And I had this great connection with Bill. So when the new boss came in, I was like, he, he, he ain't going to want me to yeah. stay around. Yeah. And I could see that that was going to happen if I wasn't careful. Now, luckily for me, we got bought out. And we Who got bought it? out by UTV, yeah. which is the Northern Ireland franchise of ITV at the time. Okay. And Scott Taunton, who um, came in as the CEO, um, and I got on brilliant. Scott was an Aussie, great guy yeah. to be around, young as well, yeah. and really got that kind of entrepreneurship, yeah. you know. So Scott was great. So I had this link still with the CEO, but my direct boss was really difficult, and we, we just didn't get on. And I didn't have the emotional capacity to know how to deal with it. Okay. What I know now, Dodgy, yeah. is... I'd walk in a room and I'd look at him eye to eye and say, how can we sort this out? Yeah. What can we do to move yeah. forwards? But I didn't know how to do that then. So um, it dragged on for a couple of years and I'd been all over the place and I was doing a lot of traveling. I went to uh, Vegas for the boxing for Ricky Hatton, um, did loads of stuff. And in 2010, it kind of came to a head and we were going to South Africa. I felt a lot of pressure around that event because also the CEO was taking out a big team of people from the advertising and sponsorship space, people, our sponsors as well. We were taking them on a trip. So yeah. there was a lot of pressure. Yeah, of course. And I was taking 23 members of staff to broadcast probably about 18 hours a day from South Africa. Yeah. Stan Collymore was with us out there. Ray Parler was out there with us. Mickey Quinn, you know, lots of ex-footballers. Darren Goff, the ex-cricketer, came with us as well. That sounds like a proper party crew, that. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Goffy was great value as well. Goffy's great value, yeah. you know. And Goffy, you know, was quite new to us as well then. But even though we were doing football, you know, Goffy got it because he's like a man of the people. Yeah. So it was great to have him around. And one night um, we said, I think it was like a week before we were due to actually really knuckle down. Um, 
before the tournament started, we went to the Monte Casino uh, in Johannesburg, which was near where we were staying. And I said, come on, guys, let's go for a night out because we're not going to have much time. We've got five weeks out of here. Yeah. Let's have a night out before we really get down to yeah. it. So we went to the Monte Casino, had a few drinks. We're all having a good laugh. We're all having a little dabble, a few of us on the blackjack tables and yeah. whatever. Next thing I know, it's five o'clock in the morning, yeah. Dodge. Mm. We've gone in there at eight o'clock at night. Mm. And I'm still there at five in the morning mm. with Ray Parler, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, I'm loving these. Yeah. You know, me and Ray are in here. Yeah. I've looked at my bank account the next day. I've done all my day. I've done everything yeah. in my bank account. Yeah. Now, at that point, because I'd only just started gambling again, I had ways and means of getting more money. So I could take out a loan or I could borrow off friends or I could do something. So I was okay at that point and I borrowed some money. But I wanted to win that money back that I'd lost. Yeah. Because it was like probably a few grand, you know yeah. what I mean? And and some of that money was my expenses for the for the month that yeah. I've been given up front for food and drink yeah. and all that stuff. And I wanted to win that back. So next day, I'm on my laptop in the um, hotel where we were staying, the accommodation. I started gambling again online. Wow. And I've done more money. Yeah. And I'm suddenly thinking, am I, what am I going to do here? Mm. I think I got to a point where I'd won some money back and I thought, that's it now. I'm just going to crack on with my job. And that's what I did for the next four or five weeks I just got on with my job mm. we had a few things go on there it was difficult circumstances at times you've got personality clashes you've got ego clashes you you know what it's like dealing with professional athletes can be challenging at yeah. times particularly yeah. if you've not played professional sport I think that people who've played professional sport together they have a different level of understanding of yeah. each other whereas somebody like me who was just a glorified radio producer yeah. doesn't have that intimate understanding of how does an athlete how they tick how their mindset how is. their mindset yeah. is you yeah. know particularly not at that stage either yeah. i didn't understand that so i found that particular you know difficult at times and basically so i went through that tournament and it was a real success that tournament for us i mean a huge success we actually we piled on half a million listeners we went from two and a half million to three million at the end of that quarter we won a Sony Gold Award for Station of the Year the next year. So it propelled us. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? We're not doing too bad yeah. here. But meanwhile, inside internally, I was still having this struggle with my boss. And I was like, I don't know how to cope with this. I don't know how to deal with it. I didn't feel at that time I had anybody to speak to. You didn't really have any friends. You might go for a few pubs and bitch about mm. a boss like people mm. do, but it wasn't really, how do I move on from this situation? So I carried on gambling and that was my escape. I'd go out at lunchtime and I'd go down to the bookmakers and I'd put money in, you know, these uh, machines they have in bookmakers. Mm -hmm. These, you know, you put money in them, can play blackjack or roulette. Yeah. A lot of people play roulette yeah. on them. And I could do 500,000 pounds just on a lunchtime, yeah. you know, and I was taking out loans. I was borrowing money off everybody I could. I was phoning my mum up saying, I know I've got a problem with the car. I had a company car. Yeah. And I was saying that I had a problem with the car. And she's like, yeah. well, don't the company pay for that? Yeah. You know, and you're lying through. I started, yeah. all the lies started coming out, the manipulation. And I got to a point in 2011, Rugby World Cup in New Zealand, um, and went out there with Brian Moore. Yeah. What a guy, Brian, what a guy, you know, great guy. Mm. And the first broadcast we did, Brian swore on air. Mm. He dropped the F-bomb. Mm. He dropped the F-bomb on air. And my boss rang me afterwards and went, we can't, like, you need to speak to him, we can't have that. 
And I'm like, how am I going to speak to Brian? Like, he's a unit. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, even now he's mm. a unit. Do you know mm. what I mean? How am I going to speak to Brian more? Mm. So I sat down and said, Brian, look, you know, can't do this, blah, blah, blah. And he burst into tears. Mm. And he said, I'm so sorry. And we just had this conversation for like two hours of loads of different stuff, you know, loads of different things. But what it did to me was I didn't have like an outlet then to say, right, I've, I've dealt with this really difficult situation. I've built up to this, but where do I go? Yeah. Where do I go for my support now? And what was I doing? I was carrying on gambling. I'd open up my laptop. We're staying in an apartment with my colleagues as well, so they can see what I'm doing. And one of my colleagues, Mark Saggers, um, is he still there now, Mark Saggers? Mark's left. Mark, Mark's on Talk TV now. Talk TV, He's moved right, yeah. to Talk TV now. Yeah. And Mark's actually um, in recovery for gambling. Yeah. And he won't mind me talking about this because he talks about it himself and he does some work with with me now, um, which we'll talk about in a little while. But he he sat down with me in a restaurant and he said, what about gambling, Matt? And I'm like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. So I just tried to kind of wash it over, yeah. you know. And he started to try to have a conversation with him about it. And he was two years in recovery at this point. I didn't know this, by the way, until recently, yeah. until we got back in touch again. And he tried to have that conversation, but I wasn't ready. Mm. And you know, like with any addiction, you've got to hit rock bottom. You've got to hit rock bottom. Yeah. I was still earning money. Yeah. I still had people who were lending me money. I was still okay with it. You know, I, I could still kind of get by. And I got through that tournament. Um, and yeah, got back to the UK. And basically, I wasn't living at home anymore. So I'd moved out of my flat. And I was due to move into somewhere else, but I had nowhere to go. Mm. So I was staying with friends in a spare room, not paying them any rent, not even thinking about how they'd feel about yeah. that because all I was consumed with mm. Dodge was money, 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 gambling. How am I covering up these lies? How am I getting out of all the way that I've manipulated people and trying to do a job? Because mm. I needed to do my job because that job was paying me to carry on gambling. Mm. For your addiction. And all yeah. I could think about was, there's got to be a way out here. Like if I win all this money back, and pay everybody off, mm. it'll be okay. Mm. Nah, it's not okay. It's, like that, it's never it? going to work no. like that. So just carried on. So I haven't got a house at this point. I've got nowhere to live, but I've deluded myself in thinking that's actually okay. Yeah. Do you know what I've got? A, I'm sleeping on somebody's spare room. Mm. I'm earning nearly 50 grand a year. Yeah. Like I should have my own place, yeah. really. Do you know what I mean? I should have bought a place by yeah. then, let alone yeah. renting, you know. Mm. So we then start to work towards 2012 and the European Championships in Poland and Ukraine. And every month from 2011 to 2012, I've got no money left after a few days. I'm borrowing, I'm, I'm doing everything I can, even just to get to work. I'm even saying to my boss, oh, I've got a meeting here when I haven't really got a meeting there just so I can go and gamble, just making up stuff were you were you boozing at this time yeah because you yeah, haven't mentioned the, the word thing. alcohol here. yeah we, we, well, we're talking yeah. you're gambling but did well, you find that the more booze you were drinking the more you were gambling was that a horrible combination like no one really does a, a line of cocaine without having a couple of beers before or no one goes to a, an addiction of prostitution or whatever it is without having that drink is that the same for you yeah you know what it's well dodged like i haven't mentioned alcohol at all because in the time at the media, it felt to me that alcohol was the normal thing to do. Yeah. You'd go out with the guys after work, yeah. like in many industries, yeah. you know, uh, go out and you'd have a few drinks. And also you think like you're going out with clients, you've got to have a few drinks. I felt that was normal. Yeah. And I drank to numb the pain from the gambling. Yeah. So gambling 
you're not taking any alcohol in or drugs, are you? You're just playing on a machine or yeah. you're at the casino or doing whatever. I'd then drink to numb the pain of all the loss. Yeah. So I'd make sure I'd got some booze in the house or something yeah. in case I lost that I've got some medicine. Yeah. It, I was self-medicating, yeah. you know, from that. So a lot of drinking going on. And also in the media, it was quite acceptable to go out for a few drinks at lunchtime. Yeah. But I didn't want to go out with my colleagues because I wanted to go and gamble by myself. Yeah. So the, what? So they didn't see you gambling? No. So this was all hidden? All hidden. Wow. And that is the thing with gambling. Yeah. And any addiction, it gets you on your own. Yeah. It doesn't want you around other people. Because yeah. when you're around other people and you're doing it, they're going to see it. Yeah. Okay. And you're going to get exposed. Yeah. So I wanted to be on my own. Yeah. And I felt that the way to do that was to go and gamble because I knew none of my colleagues would be in a in a bookmaker's in the middle of London at two o'clock on a Wednesday mm. afternoon. Mm. That was the place for me to go and hide. Mm. None of this was about money at this point, by the way. All it was about was getting out of my own head. So I was so stuck in my own head, my own thoughts, trapped in my own mind. I just wanted to get out of that. And the only way to get out of it was to get to gamble. I felt like I, it had taken me to another place, probably like why people take drugs or drink, yeah. you know, to take them to another place. Well, you just nailed it on head a minute ago and nulled the pain. Nulled the pain completely. Nulled the pain. I don't want to hear. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with what's going on in my life at the time. So what shall I do? I'll get on the piss. What shall I do? I'll do cocaine. What shall I do? Get out of my head on drugs. What shall I do? Shall I gamble? Yeah. Because actually there's something going on deeper inside here. Exactly. And maybe the maybe I'm just hypothesizing here. Maybe there's some inner work or self-development that needed to be done internally to fix what's going on for you rather than the actual gambling itself. 100%. And yeah. that's where I'm at now. Yeah. And that's what I got to that point eventually. Yeah. But you're right. I wish I'd have got to that point then, yeah. Dodge, because yeah. if I'd have got to that point then, I might still be working there. Yeah. Anyway, all all blows up in 2012. Uh, loads of stuff had gone on. I borrowed money off people I shouldn't have borrowed money off. How much roughly do you think you were in debt at the time? I wrote it all down, actually. Uh, in debt. The money I actually owed to people wasn't a huge amount of money, probably about 20, 25 grand. It's a lot of money to a lot of people, by yeah. the way. But at that time, I didn't feel that that was a huge amount because of the salary I was earning. I thought I could catch up on that quite a lot, yeah. quite quickly. So it's not a huge amount, but the money that I'd gambled over the time, hundreds of thousands had gone through. Wow. I'd gone through, you know, in terms of, I've gone to a casino, I've gambled this amount, I've gone back the next day and gambled yeah. them out again. And this, so probably- Did you Rough going, roughly a couple of hundred grand. Yeah, I mean, I've had I've had money sometimes where I've had the ability to go and put down a deposit on a house in London. Wow. And then you've gone and gambled that to get more for yeah. the buzz. Yeah, so, you know, when I said I was staying in the spare room in somebody's yeah. house, yeah. I'd won a large amount of money from a casino. The next day, the plan was to go and... Double it. Well, no, actually, at the pl plan at the time was actually to go and... What can I do? Can I get a house? Can oh, I do I something? Oh, I see. You wanted to go and use yeah. it. Yeah. Can I go and buy a, like, a dream holiday? Yeah. For a, you know, and all this so stuff. So what, what drew you back then? Obviously, well, the addiction drew you back to going... Yeah. So I'm walking down the street with a large amount of money, yeah. and I'm walking past the bookmakers, and it was like a somebody switched a magnet on. Yeah. Bam. I'm in. Yeah. Six hours later, it's gone. Jesus Christ. The lot. They said this, like, this, whole, this whole addiction thing is like... It's... it's, it's terrorizes people's minds yeah yeah and just just to say about that what happened there was so in in, in 2012 and how a kind of that terrorizing in my mind actually came to a climax whereas I'd, I'd 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 hurt all these people around me um emotionally and financially yeah. emotionally most of my colleagues were mm. really emotionally scarred by my actions they didn't mm. know i was gambling yeah. but they thought New my behaviors were off yeah. 
2012, we're in Ukraine and Poland. We've got the opening ceremony in Warsaw, and my job was to be there and oversee the whole operation. Yeah. I'm walking up to the stadium to pick up my pass and go in, and I just thought, I can't do this anymore. I've had enough. And I knew my colleague Liam was in there, and I thought, I'm not going to go in there. There's too much heat on me right now. Do you know what I mean? I've hurt too many people, and it's all caught up on me. Wow. I knew people were chasing money. I knew wow. this was going on. Yeah. So I turned around. And there was a rumor for a long time that I threw my phone in the river or something, mm. but that that wasn't quite true. But I did lose my phone. Something happened. I borrowed a phone off somebody. I phoned a driver who we'd employed. I must have had it on a piece of paper or something, his number. And I said, can you come and pick me up, please, and take me over the border to Ukraine where Stan Collymore was? Yeah. And he did that. We drove overnight. None of my colleagues knew where I was at this stage. I had no phone, nothing. Yeah. They're like, why didn't he turn up yesterday? Where is he? What's going on? Yeah. Is he alive? Is he alive? Yeah. You know, so it's me and this driver sleeping, you know, like for five or six hours because he was tired. We had to, you know, we went over yeah. the border and eventually got to a hotel and seen Stan. And Stan knew, Stan knew, and Stan just gave me a big hug and I went, Stan, I've had enough. And I spoke to one of my other colleagues who had enough. I need to go home. I can't do this. I need to go home. And, um, got onto one of my colleagues back at home to book me a flight. Yeah. And this is where my mind was crazy dodge. Yeah. This is how sick I was in my head. So got back to um, Kiev and um, they booked me a flight and I rang them and said, I don't want that flight. I want to watch the England game before I go back. I'm trying at this point to run the show Yeah. where by the way, the whole broadcast is relying on me. Yeah. I hadn't done a lot of work, so people didn't have accommodation where they should have had it. Imagine turning wow. up and you haven't got a hotel to stay. Wow. You know, all this kind of stuff had wow, gone okay. on. So I got back to the UK and um, Ronnie Arani uh, plays cricket for, yeah. played cricket for Essex in England. Ronnie and I were quite close. And I phoned Ronnie and Ronnie said, Matt, come here, come and stay here. So that's what I did. I went to Ronnie's, had a little granny annex, and he yeah. said, tell me about it. And I said, it all came out, all yeah. started to come out then. Yeah. This is what's gone on. And she said, okay. So I got a phone call off the CEO at Ronnie's house because Ronnie was quite close to the CEO as well. This is the ex-BBC? No, not my boss. No, okay. That was my boss. Yeah, okay. This is Scott, Scott Taunton, yeah. our CEO. Yeah. How are you? Not great. Okay, we need to have a chat. Okay, we'll meet in London. So we met in London in a hotel room, told him where it was at. We had a meeting room in a hotel and we had, you know, I thought it was quite big time. Like yeah, they yeah, actually yeah. arranged a hotel meeting room yeah. for this meeting, you know, yeah. and I was like, wow, you know, they're, they're really, you know, they, they're laying it on here. And he said, look, we're going to arrange some counseling for you. We're going to send you to counseling. Um, and that's what I did for 10 weeks. I started to go to Gamblers Anonymous meetings and then they brought my old boss back to do an investigation into everything that had gone on. Yeah. And part of that was how much have you gambled? Who do you owe money to? Yeah. So we're aware of the full picture here because we need to know from a business point of yeah. view that we're protecting ourselves because yeah. if people are going to come after you, yeah. they're going to come to us. Yeah. So we need to know this stuff. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So I laid it all out on the table. We had this investigation. My old my old boss came in. You know, that they they dealt with it, Dodge, brilliantly okay. when they knew. Okay. They wanted to do everything. Yeah. And Scott said to me, Matt, here's the deal. You stop gambling, you can come back. Mm. We will clear the path. We will make everything okay. Yeah. But you've got to stop gambling. 
and I couldn't stop dodge. Yeah, I'm sure. You're I couldn't stop. Addict. I was yeah. full on, yeah. full tilt at it. Yeah. So we had a meeting a few months later. So they paid me on full pay for six months, which yeah. I didn't need to do. Yeah. And I had to leave in the end. Had to or wanted to? Had to. Okay. Gross misconduct. Yeah. I couldn't stay. I yeah. brought the business into disrepute. Yeah. And I was sad. Mm. But my focus was just how am I going to carry on gambling? Wow. And I was even lying to my mum saying I've still got my job, but they're giving me a few months off just to sort my stuff yeah. out. You yeah. know, all this kind of stuff was going on. And um, yeah, that day, it was almost like my life's come to an end. That's how I felt. Now, a lot of people who I know who have had problems with gambling over the years have been suicidal yeah. or have tried to take their own life. Yeah. I didn't get to that stage, but I went through some very, very dark times. Mm. So I, was, I moved back to my mum's then. Mm. And then I got a job in Singapore. I got offered a job in Singapore. But obviously they didn't know what had gone on with me. You know, I managed to just get this job. And I thought, great, I'll go to Singapore. This is a new start, fresh start. What do I do within a day of getting there? I'm in the, I'm in the Marina Bay Sands Casino yeah. gambling my head off again. Yeah. Same thing happens again. The same thing, Dodge, again, I can't stop gambling. The whole thing, my colleagues, my work relationships start to break down. I didn't speak to my mum for a whole year when I was in Singapore. Mm. She didn't have a phone number for me. She didn't know how to contact me. I was so ashamed. I was so embarrassed of everything I'd done. I just went under the, I went off the grid. I went off the grid. And then I went. Why? Why did you want to put your mum through that? It's a good question. For me, it was easier. For me, it was easier to keep her out of it. For If I felt in my mind, in my deluded mind at the time, by the way, um, that by not telling her that it would be easier for her. So what she doesn't know won't harm her. But kind of it's thing. her son not contacting her. Somebody yeah. like, you know, I know we, we spoke recently on LinkedIn about how yeah. close you were to your mum and that yeah. regular contact. Yeah. To not have that anymore must have been absolutely devastating for her. Mm. But I didn't know how to deal with it. I mm. didn't want to tell her, Mum, I'm, I'm, I'm a gambling addict and mm. I'm an alcoholic. Mm. How, do you, how do you say that, yeah. you know, to your own mum? Mm. So we, we, I just didn't pick up the phone. Now, what I did do is I sent like a birthday card or a Christmas card. So I guess she still knew I was alive. Yeah. And I think my cousin reached out to me at some point on on, on social media or something and kind of said to her he is still a yeah but you know we don't know what's going on because mm. nobody really knew at that point you know mm. apart from my old colleagues they knew about the gambling but did anybody else in my circle know no they didn't at that point when you were with your colleagues back then were you borrowing off all your mates at the work as well yeah so then they were all talking behind you going oh, he borrowed five and a quarter for me probably of it. has he told you the same bullshit stories he told me and then it's all been spread probably around. so then you when you're going into a room you realize that all at one point when you're in ukraine poland for Shit, everyone's in one room here yeah. and they all know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And they've all been speaking. Yeah. And that's why he wanted to do a runner. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. It was on top. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it was on top of me. Did and you do, is there anything that you did where you sold anything to get yeah. money? Oh, yeah. Go on. iPads, computers, anything. Anything I could get my hands on. My car. I sold my car. I had an Audi A3. That's my pride and joy, you know. I sold it. Just a bit. Just, Just a gamble. gamble. Bloody hell. Did you do anything? Did you take any advantage of any privileges you had while you're traveling the world in, this, in the position you're in to earn money? Uh, no, not in that sense. Um, I would say that I have stolen money. 
yeah. to gamble. Um, when you say stolen, what do you mean by that? Um, I would basically say to somebody, if you give me some money, then I will facilitate this for you. Example. So I would say I'll get you a ticket to a match or something okay. like that, and I, you know, and then couldn't. Have you got an example of that for me? Yeah. So when I was in Ukraine, um, basically I promised um, we had some a guy out there we were doing some work with. I said to him, look, I'll get you a couple of tickets to a game and wasn't able to give him those tickets so he'd given me the money to get them for him yeah. and then i couldn't give him them and what did you do how was your communication when he was chasing you for that just put the phone down really yeah oh, and then he was phoning the office yeah and then it would all come out and then it was so all whole... coming back oh my yeah. god okay now i must add as well at this point is that you know um 90 of the people that i owed money to and things like that I'm either still in the process. By the way, I'm nearly eight years in recovery yeah. now. I was a still in the Good process you, of paying the them way. back. Or, Good for yeah, you. Still in the process of paying <laughs> yeah. them back. Or some of them they don't even want to talk to you again. And you just have to accept that yeah. and be ready to if they do come along at any point, um, you know, that you are prepared to to put make those up. amends and put my hands up. And a lot yeah. of people, you know, as well, Dodge have actually said, Don't want the money. Yeah. Just want you well. Yeah. That's Brilliant. all we wanted. Brilliant. So yeah, so I mean there was lots of other stuff that went on. I mean, it just went on and on and on. <laughs> so this must just been get on top of you. What was it about gambling that you kept coming back for it? Was it the buzz of the win? Yeah. Was it the buzz of maybe when you were at school you weren't good at sport and you weren't that the, 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 one of the main faces and you think if I was gambling I'm gonna make my ego I'm gonna make myself feel good it's internally ego. ego again ego yeah, and okay. the dopamine hit yeah so when you first start gambling you get that dopamine rush like you get when you you know people take drugs they get a yeah. rush off it yeah and you're always as an addict trying to chase that first hit yeah. that first feeling yeah and I wanted that feeling again yeah and then the ego starts to get out of control it was like hang on a minute. I, I want to be. I want to be like part of a crowd. I want to, you know. I I never thought that people would accept Matt for being Matt. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And what really brought this up for me? So, I'm skipping a few bits here, but I went into rehab here in uh, Bournemouth. I went to the oh, Providence projects. Yeah, Paul Spanger at the Providence Paul, Project. Paul, what a great yeah, boy he is. Paul's a great guy. Yeah. Shame he's a Tottenham fan. Yeah, I know. So he's just, a good boy. <laughs> Paul's great, and you know what? Thanks. And Paul knows this. I've said to him many times. Paul gave me a charitable place there. Yeah. Because I had nothing. So what year are we talking here? Uh, we're talking 2014. 2014. So did you contact Paul and he yeah. said, get yourself down so here? So I got offered a place. Dodge. So who was, down, who was down here as well? Gazza was down Gazza here. Gazza was here. Yeah, I met Gazza. Yeah. <laughs> we had a good chat. So everyone was down here, weren't they? <laughs> Pile them down to Bournemouth. <laughs> microclimate. Get them all clean. That was unbelievable. <laughs> um, so Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie knew Paul. And Paul come and met me in London while I was still gambling yeah. and had a chat with me. I wasn't ready then. Yeah. And eventually I got back to the UK, uh, still hadn't spoke to my mum, so we were about 18 months stage then, um, you know, and every day I thought about that, by yeah. the way, Dodge. I yeah. mean, I was trapped in my own mind yeah, around mate. that. And the longer you leave it, yeah, the more difficult it, it is. Yeah. Anyway, um, I got offered a place at Sporting Chance Clinic, Tony, Tony Adams yeah. runs, because yeah. I knew, um, I basically I knew Stephen Perdue run Champneys, and Champneys basically hosts Sporting Chance at one of their places yeah. anyway. The day before or two days before I was due to go, they said, Matt, we can't take you at the moment. We've got a paying client coming. Yep. So you're going to get bumped. Yep. And you know, with addiction, if you've got a window of opportunity to go to treatment, you need to go then. Yeah, I agree. Because if you don't, you're going to be back out there yep. again. And it's just another good excuse to say you're not coming in get back gambling again. So, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I had nothing at this point. I yeah. was sleeping at an old acquaintance's house on the floor on, on one of them camp beds. And it was just like there was drugs going on there, drink. Like mm. I hadn't know, I hadn't like I wasn't really friends with this guy. I just mm. knew him. Did you, you know? take drugs? No, 
No. Not at that point. Yeah. I mean, I might smoke the odd yeah, joint or something, yeah. but yeah, nothing yeah, yeah. harder than yeah. that. But I was drinking heavily still. Yeah. And you're drinking choice when you're talking drinking heavily, talking lots of pints or you just yeah, go to shorts? Anything, or... anything. Guineas, wine, gin. Anything. Jack Daniels, yeah. anything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so so they said, look, we can't get you in at the moment. So I contacted Paul and I said, I don't know if you remember me. I met you in London a couple of years ago. I need help. I'm ready. And he yeah. said, Matt, come to Bournemouth. Yeah. But I had no means of getting here. I was in the Midlands. Yeah. And I contacted my one and only friend, John, who, uh, John Norman, who's the cricket editor at TalkSport, and he's still there now. And he's a great guy. He's like a brother to me. And I said, John, I'm going to go to rehab. Uh, but I need the money for the train. Can you help me, please? And all day I didn't get a reply like to this email. And I thought, oh, no, he's just had enough of me now. He just thinks it's more lies, yeah. blah, blah. And he said, eventually he sent me the ticket on an email or something. And he said, Matt, Sorry it's took me so long to get back to you, but I had to phone them first to check you were going. Wow. Yeah, because th that's all the lies yeah, I told, lot, you know yeah. what I mean? And yeah, he said, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had to check first, but here's a ticket. I just want my friend back. Mm. I want my friend well. Mm. Please go. And the next, the next thing, I'm on the train. Next day, I'm on the train, and that was the turning point in my life, Brilliant. going to the property. I mean... It was an amazing experience. I stayed there for six months. So explain to me, explain <laughs> explain to me exactly, for the listeners here, exactly what it is down here in Bournemouth. So it's a rehab treatment centre, alcohol and drug treatment centre. And gambling? Uh, or is it all it's not, wrapped It's into all one? wrapped into one. Okay. It's a 12-step treatment programme, basically. That's what they take people through. It's like a spiritual principle process. But you have lots of counselling. So it's, a clin it's, it's, it's in a clinical setting. You yeah. know, they've got counsellors there. You basically stay with your other peers in dry houses. Yeah. So you live with them. Yeah. So you're all together going through the same journey, yeah. the same experience. You can identify on lots of different levels. At first, you don't think you can. You think, oh, I don't, I'm nothing like these yeah. guys. You know, yeah. I had a good job and, yeah. you know, and all this. And then you quickly realize. And the way that I realized was I went to um, my doctor's, um, the Provident Surgery, and walked in. And he said, so what are you here for, Matt? And I said, gambling and alcohol. And he said, I hear you and I know where you're at because I'm 25 years sober. Lovely. And the moment a doctor said that to me, yeah. Dodge, it was like, this is a profession that personally I hold in high regard. Yeah. Somebody who's a doctor, you know, saves lives. Yeah. And he's telling me he's been where I've been. Yeah. This made me change my mind. Like it's not people who are down alleyways That's drinking right. out of brown paper yeah. bags. It can affect anybody. Yeah. So I went through the treatment process, did a lot of counselling, did some group therapy, started to talk to my family again. So I spoke to my mum again for the first time. Lovely. Like, to, like, you know. And Is your mum still about? Yeah. She lives here now. Does she? I brought her down here. She's living Excellent. in Ringwood now. She Excellent. loves it. We've got the best relationship. She's 80 now. We've got the best relationship we've ever had. Ever. She just wanted me to get well. Yeah. That's all she wanted. And so my journey just like went on lots of different things. So I, I got really involved in Gamblers Anonymous. I'm a trustee for Gamblers Anonymous. Um, and I was didn't know what to do with my life, really. Went through rehab and I was like, I'm going to settle here. This is where I want to be. But what am I going to do? And then you also start to think about how am I going to make amends to all these people? Like yeah. All these people I, make, I owe money to, how am I, how am I going to... But that's but that's part of that twelve step program. Yeah. That twelve step program, you've got to face exactly all the lies Oof. and write it down on who you lie to, how much you do them, and you've got to go through that process. Yeah. And you have to contact those people. Yeah. If 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 it's not gonna hurt them anymore. 
So, for example, if it was a relationship you were, were in and perhaps they're now married to somebody, okay. that could cause cool. an issue. Okay. So yeah. you've got to be very careful yeah. okay. about who. And also, if the individual perhaps is going to you know, cause you some harm, then well, you in may, return, in return okay. then you would probably avoid it. Okay. You know, it's difficult because you want to do those things, but yep. you've also got to look after yourself. Yep. That has to be your priority. Yeah. And there's some people I've contacted, you know, who just don't want to know. Yeah. And how would you contact? Would you give them a bell? Would you drop them a text? Oh, or just a letter? A, yeah, a letter or give them a bell or whatever. Yeah. So I had a sponsor in, in the 12-step program, and a sponsor's like a mentor yeah. who's been through the same journey as you. And, and basically keeps everything confidential. They're not related to you. It's someone who you have to tell everything to. Yeah. Okay. And and, uh, and my sponsor's a great guy who we're really close friends now, actually. Um, and he said to me, look, your first amends needs to be the most difficult one. Mm. And that was to my mum. Mm. And he said, once you've made that amends, everything else should just fall into place. What did you say to your mum? Well, you can't say sorry, you see. I felt I couldn't say sorry. I felt sorry wasn't enough. Does, does that make sense? Of course. I'd said sorry so many times. That it didn't mean anything. Yeah. So what did I say? It wasn't what I said. It was what I did dodge. Yeah. I was a son. I shown up to everything. I helped her with everything she needed help with. I went up more regularly to visit her. I said, what do you want to do with your life now? She said, I want to move, I want to move down to Bournemouth. Okay, we're going to make that happen. I did all those things, everything I did. And several occasions she said to me now, you've done more than I've ever wished for, ever. Mm. And like, you know, we speak on the phone twice a day now, mm. you know, all of those things. And the only question she ever had for me, Dodge, was she said, I know, I know that you were drinking a lot, but were you gambling? Because all over the years, you know, we, we go right back to the beginning of when we did this story about taking the money out yeah. of her purse. Yeah. Those questions were probably still unanswered yeah. for her. And I said, yes, I was. That was it. Never spoken about again. Mm. Never anything about it again. That was it for her was enough. Mm. Then I had the amends of all my colleagues at TalkSport. And that was difficult because... Roughly how many people do you reckon? Emotionally, uh, probably most of them. Emotionally, I'd hurt. Financially, not so many. You say most of them, what sort of numbers are you looking at? 10 maybe, 15, who were okay. quite close. 10, yeah. 10, 15 maybe were quite close to me. So an opportunity came, uh, and I was still, still talking to my friend John who paid for the train ticket down here, and I'd have the odd exchange of email with colleagues, but they're like, they probably still don't believe you, yeah. even if you're three or four years sober yeah. and not gambling anymore. Yeah. And then an opportunity came my way where TalkSport brought out a book, 20 Years Behind the Scenes. Really? And they said, Matt, will you write about your gambling in the book? We'd love, we want you to write about yeah. your story in the book. And I knew Ian Cruz who, who wrote the book and Ian and I, uh, Ian uh, sat opposite me at TalkSport and then he got, he got the gig basically to write this book. And he, he said, we, you know, let's sit down for an hour, uh, for a day, sorry, or half a day, whatever it was and go through the story. Mm. And I didn't want to do it at first. Cause I was like, mm. and then I thought, you know what, this is my chance now to tell my side and how I've got to where I am now. Yeah. So, yeah, it was about two or three years ago we did this piece in the book and it was about four pages of some of the stories and my gambling and where I am now. And reading what my colleagues said about me in that book was like, wow, that's what they really thought of me. Did the, what, it, they really loved me. Brilliant. They really loved me. They said, we, you know, some of the stuff they wrote in there was like, we missed him. 
he was really loved in the office, yeah. all these things. And I was like, I never knew that. Yeah. I never knew those things. Because, you know, like I didn't, we don't speak about those things, yeah. you know. So then over the years, you know, I've spoke, started speaking to more people again. So in terms of my relationship with the guys at TalkSport, we get on great now, Brilliant. you know, uh, right up to the top, you know, I'm speaking to people right at the top there um, and hoping to get them involved in some of the work I'm trying to do now as well. So, and then all my relationships have repaired. I say all of them, you know, some are still difficult. Some are still financially, you're still making amends and that takes time. You know, you can't like give your whole salary out to people every yeah. month because you've got to live as well, but yeah. you can move on in your life, you yeah. know, and that's what's happening. So do you find that you can walk around with your head held high? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. How's that feel? Amazing. Amazing, man. You know, to, to go from sleeping on that camp bed yeah. now to now having a great job again. So, um, so I didn't know what I wanted to do in my life and, um, I went to Chelsea Football Club about a job and that was going really well. And then I decided that that wasn't going to be for me. And they were brilliant. You know, I told them about my mental health and why I took some time out of the industry and stuff. And to be fair to Chelsea, I've got to say, they were fantastic. They were like, we'd rather have somebody like you who's worked on himself yeah. behind the scenes come and work for us than somebody who's currently struggling. Yeah. So, but I just realized it wasn't for me. And I thought, what am I going to do? I, I don't think I can go back into radio again. I don't know what I'm passionate about anymore. I was a bit lost. So I was working in a bed shop, selling furniture, like, you know, and I, and at times I felt that that hurt me at times. Like, and to be fair, the people I worked for were great. It was a family outfit in Christchurch, brilliant. But it was a means to an end. It wasn't what I wanted to do. Mm. And um, I seen this job come up for uh, like um, working as like a, a kind of project coordinator for a, for a charity. Um, on a on a specific program that that are running around peer support and helping individuals who like me need the help who don't perhaps want to go to Gamblers Anonymous and sit in a church or hall on a Thursday night yeah. like I do but want that support so I applied for the role and Matt who runs the service now it's called Peer Aid he said wow when I seen your CV I was like what's this guy doing applying <laughs> for this job do you know what I mean like he's done all this stuff he's applying for this yeah we'll take him yeah do you know what I mean yeah. And so I did that for a year and then I sat down with <clears throat> Frankie Graham, our CEO. Um, so the charity I work for is called Bet No More. And um, sat down with Frankie and I said, look, you know, I'm getting older now. I want to use my professional skills that I've had in the past and bring them into the charity. Mm. And he said, so a communications role of some kind. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. So I'm now um, head of external affairs for the charity. So I take care of a lot of networking our comms marketing stuff like that Brilliant. um and like my life dodge has just gone like so i've just got yeah. back from america yeah so the charity we're trying to do some work in the states at the moment around the training we, we run some training for operators everything we do in the charities around lived experience yeah. so see our ceo has lived experience yeah. what is better having a, a university degree or lived mm, experience absolutely. having lived experience yeah, he's 16 years off gambling i think yeah. now frankie yeah. he's a great guy yeah. he reminds me of my old boss that open door policy yeah. i work from home so i've got balance in my life yeah I have the abilities to travel again for my job, which I yeah. love and meeting people and being at conferences and trade shows. Mm. So, you know, I'm speaking in Barcelona at a big trade show, gambling mm. trade show in a few weeks about mm. my lived experience. I mean, my life's just gone from like rock bottom to like powering Amazing. forwards. I'm, I'm really, really happy for you. Thanks, man. <laughs> really, I'm genuinely really happy. Do you know what I like about it is that you're actually, weirdly, it's full circle again, you're actually working something that you actually love. Yeah. <laughs> 
And I never thought I would. <laughs> but without the addiction. Yeah. And helping other people who are going through this, who I've got friends now, I know they're gambling. Yeah. I know they're gambling. They don't want to, they don't want to show anyone. They don't want to have that sort of hurt feeling that people know that you're wasting thousands every week on gambling and yeah. casinos and fruities and et cetera. Yeah. But we, we, I came and seen you a couple of years ago and we had a great chat and you, you told me about that at the time. I remember you saying, I don't, you know, about having conversations with people. Mm. And I was like, you know, it spurred me on a little bit, actually that conversation mm. dodged because even though I didn't realize it at the time, I thought, actually, this is the problem. Yeah. How difficult it is to say to somebody, yeah. what do I do for you? Or how can I help you? Yeah. Cause you can't give them money. Yeah. Money's not the answer to this. You know, I talked about Scott Taunton, our old CEO at Talk Sport. He looked at the money I owed to everybody and he said, Matt, I could fix this for you, yeah. but I'm not going to because yeah. it will not sort out no, the problem. So, and you you know, when you say about, you know, and thanks for, you know, saying about being happy about where I'm at now, because I didn't think I would be. Yeah. I didn't think there would be a place for me anymore where I was going to be happy with my life again. Even though everybody around me said that that it was going to happen, I just had to be patient. I didn't still have the confidence. And I was with our CEO last week and he said to me, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying this, he said, Matt, you've taken this role on and took the bull by the horns and you've just ran with it. And we're talking to people now that we haven't spoken to before and we're opening up conversations. The great thing is I can use Talk Sport as that vehicle as well yeah. now and say I work there. Yeah. And when, when I say to people I worked there for 12 years, mm. They kind of listen then. Yeah. They're like, hang on, you must have been pretty good at your yeah. job. So we'll sit at the table with you and we'll listen to what you've got to say about this. Yeah. So I'm putting us now in front of gambling operators. So I'm talking to some big gambling operators about what we can do in terms of bring our lived experience as a charity to the work that they're doing and help them around safer gambling and responsible yeah. gambling. So we get, we're getting people to the table now. Yeah. You know, we're going to the Houses of Parliament in a few weeks to meet MPs. You right. know, we're we're really motoring on in the space that we're working with to help other people mm. and doing a lot of work with Gamble Aware as well, who, um, you know, fund one of our services. That peer support services, well, you, you know what how important mentoring is to people. Of course. And when you've got um, people who've been on that same journey as you, supporting you, and they know they've got that empathy yeah. and they know the, the road that you've walked down, the difficult road yeah. at times, how you can empathize with them and how that helps them. Honestly, think actually in the future that peer support will be the primary recovery service yeah. rather than that kind of, yeah, there's a lot of clinical stuff that needs to be done around trauma and things like that. Mm. But having that person there to say, actually, you know what? I've been where you've been. Mm. Nothing beats that. Mm. Nothing. Yeah. Matt, I have really, really enjoyed this. Thanks, Dodge. Thanks for your honesty. And it's yeah. lovely to see you really happy again. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. You're Thanks a gentleman. Nice one, Dodge. Cheers, Matt. Cheers, mate. Take care, Thank mate. You. Good man.